0: of briefing. Welcome to Chiefs of Station. I am Chief of Station, Efren Torres, and I am here with Chief of Station, Pilani Lamini. And this is Episode 1, Private Sector Intelligence, A Brief Discussion. And uh, first, before getting into uh, any discussion about private sector, uh, I think it's adequate for us to introduce ourselves. So since the audience has heard me provide with introduction, and they're, I guess, more or less familiar with my voice, some of, some of members of the audience may actually have met me in person. Uh, but I'd like to take this opportunity actually to give you the floor, Pilani, so people can actually get to know you about your uh, your professional background, your uh, academic background as well. So that being said,
1: please go ahead and introduce yourself, Chief Lamini. Thank you very much, Chief Efren. Uh, my name is Pilani Lamini. Uh, I am a Zimbabwean national. Uh, I'm an intelligence analyst with the private sector for the, and uh, also a program coordinating member of the African Intelligence Studies Collective. I also spent quite a lot of time uh, as a senior instructor for the Intelligence Professionals Immersion Program, uh, where I do deliver trainings on political security risk assessments for analysts in the private sector. Very, very mean? good, thank you.
0: Yeah, and uh, to those of you that are, are not familiar with uh, who I am, uh, I am a private sector intelligence professional. I have been practicing since uh, 2014, uh, just in corporate, uh, working at various global security operation centers, also known as GSOCs, also at intelligence units, I also, I am a an academic part-time. I do not hold a PhD. However, I have been uh, embedded into this whole uh, academic world, trying to push for uh, the development of the scholarship on private sector intelligence. Uh, as I mentioned during the introduction to the podcast, Private sector intelligence at this moment is still in its early uh, developmental stages in academia. Uh, the reason why we decided to to do this podcast, and that's the whole mission behind Ghost, the Global Hazards and Open Source team, uh, is to inform people about private sector. Uh, I remember when I started working in intelligence, and I will go to these academic conferences like ISA. People will often, well, the intelligence crew intelligence studies crew will disregard me because they will think that I was doing competitive intelligence or business intelligence, right? Uh, and that was not true. And I remember actually the first time that we got, we got accepted into ISA with a panel on private sector, we ended up being pushed to a Saturday at the very time slot in the very, <laughs> in the farthest room in a separate hotel, not even in the main venue, uh, but we, ha- we have come a long way. Uh, I mean that being said, yes. Yeah, so I have experience working in corporate in, in within the intelligence context, uh, investigations, tactical intelligence, strategic intelligence, social media, uh, in, intelligence investigations. Um, uh, you name it, right? Uh, uh, I've also been involved with uh, with sanctions work uh, and uh, topics of related to corruption and fraud. Uh, it's a it's it's a very big field, and people actually don't know it exists. And it, this is what we're trying to do here. We're trying to inform people. Uh, but in any case, so what we want to do right now is to to get into topic a little bit, right? So, but uh, to those of you that are not very familiar with Ghost, the Global Hazards and Open Source team, uh, and this is a, an initiative that started when I was the editor-in-chief for the Journal of European and American Intelligence Studies. It was the apprenticeship that was offered by by GS. And this apprenticeship uh, focuses on training people on how to operate as an intelligence analyst or a watch officer at a GSOC. So we teach them, uh, we mentor them, uh, teach them how to write choice of words, we push them to, to be critical thinkers. That is extremely important. We also, we, we teach them through through failure. Failure for me is, is, is a very important aspect of my training. Because if you are working in an intelligent setting, I will say 98% of the time, it's going to be okay. But then that 2% of the time, that's when something blows up anywhere in the world and you're gonna have presence. You're gonna have either people, you're gonna have facilities, maybe you have a joint venture, uh, some sort of uh, infrastructure that is attached to the company, what have you. And then when everything goes belly up, you're gonna have to be on your A game. There is no time to think, it's just time to act, right? And a lot of people freeze and a lot of people fail. So through us teaching, via different failures. This encourages the students to actually realize what they did wrong. We're not here to give students a gold start every time they fail. We're here to give them a reality check. This is what's gonna happen if you don't react uh, uh, within the established timeframe for escalations. People could die, people could get hurt something worse. Maybe operations would be impacted. And so that is basically the essence of ghost where we get students or early career professionals that are not really that marketable, right? So we've also identified a big gap with most academic institutions where, yes, they they give us the fundamentals. They they teach us the theory, the concepts, the history. But when it comes to hands-on training, it's very lacking. And as a hiring manager... I will think, well, I'd rather have somebody from a rather unknown or little known university that knows how to do this stuff instead of somebody from Columbia or Harvard or any of the Ivy League universities that has just a paper diploma cum laude or what have you on political science or intelligence studies if it's going to take me a long time for me to train them. And a long time for them to understand how to uh, how to do the operations in within the intelligence unit. Uh, so that's a big gap, and uh, this is what we're trying to fill. So, what, what what are your thoughts, Phil? You have been involved with uh, with Ghost since its, its inception, uh, especially uh, uh, you know the fine tuning of the uh, intelligence professionals immersion program.
1: Yeah, I think um, I, I I think you really have a valid point. You know, when you come in from the angle that you know there's this there's this there's this gap of practical applicability. I think that uh, what can be recognised about universities and all sorts of other more broad forms of education is the very fact that you know they contribute a lot to a lot of background knowledge, a lot a lot of what we call subject matter expertise of of varying levels however in order to be someone of a much more analytical nature uh, analyzing contemporary happenings you know and it's that part contemporary something that's happening in the there and the now and um, i think that part of what ghost has always been doing from the beginning yes you are you are saying that i've been fine-tuning but actually it's been woven in since the very start this sort of simulation-focused aspect of it. And I think that, you know, um, always actively trying to create this very realistic environment for um, someone to be immersed in is part of the reason why we've called it the Intelligence Professionals Immersion Program. So I also think that um, the most important gap which is being filled is that Prior to you actually being exposed to the environment, do you have any opportunity to even get a taste of what it could be like? It doesn't mean that it's conclusively showing you that this is what you should expect, but at best to be surrounded by professionals who have been exposed in in varying sort of capacities, bringing all of that to you and making it really applicable makes you much Much, 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 much more prepared than, say, a fresh graduate would be, trying to do some on, 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 on on-site training um, as soon as they enter
0: the workforce. Right, and I think that it's a very important thing to mention. While uh, this training is, it's very comprehensive. By no means do we. uh, By no means, this is a one-size-fits-all. Uh, intelligence units in private sectors uh, they, they they operate differently some maybe because of the industry threats vary from industry to industry also you have you have to take into consideration the organizational aspect to it uh, so definitely there are not two drops of water uh but at least the very fundamentals on, on how to react uh how to think critically how to write that is probably the, the that is one of the challenges when teaching students. And I think you can relate to that because you and I uh, grade uh, the different assessments that we give to the students. And we do see a drastic improvement from the very first assignment to the very last uh, team project. It's like day and night. It's, it's 180 right there. Uh, you can even compare it. And a lot of people, a lot of students, they come with their own biases. They don't realize it. They think that, well, because they did a degree in international relations or politics or they did an internship oh, somewhere, somewhere. I know, I know better. Right. Uh, then they realize that this is a very different type of training. Right. Uh, it, a lot of people may say that there is little sympathy for the participants uh but i am i'm also I'm, I'm i'm very honest when I, I interview the participants and i tell them you're going to get a taste of private sector you're going to get a taste of what is it to do uh, how is it to to do a threat assessment a risk assessment a trouble security assessment a crime assessment uh how are you going to write uh, different in uh, in internal intelligence reports or maybe uh, you will need to monitor uh i don't know uh, animal rights activists, since a, in a you work in a fictitious pharmaceutical company, right? Uh, uh, it, it's very interesting, but I'm also very honest that as the weeks go by, the hill just gets keeps getting steeper and steeper. And it's a very, very uh, long way up to the top. Not everybody graduates, right? Uh, last class for IPEP, we had... 21 students and only nine of them graduated. So it's also worth mentioning the, the course is free. And because it's free, uh, we need to make sure that we maintain certain standards. But tell me in your opinion, Phil, what, what are the identified challenges when trying to teach uh, individuals that have not been exposed to private sector uh, on the intricacies of our tradecraft? craft? What is the the major challenge or challenges if you're able to identify more than one?
1: I think that, you know, let's just go through the run of the mill one, which is, you know, the sort of uh, um, government lens. The the, the whole aspect where we have this closed minded view that intelligence is only the preserve of the state and of government uh, oriented institutions, you know, and uh, I'm guilty of this you <laughs> you uh, you will definitely remember uh, our our little debate from day 1 that yeah no i don't know what private sector intelligence is and you strenuously told me you've got to think about private sector man it's a whole different world and i had no idea that 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 sort of existed so there so there really is this little cage where it's just the moment you say the word intelligence, it means government, and then ends there. But um, I also think that when it when it when it sort of comes to people who have an idea that private sector intelligence exists, of or of what it could represent, there also tends to be this aspect where people are anticipating that some of the work is always going to be this. Fun, <laughs> fun stuff, mm-hmm. um, and 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 people think that somehow private sector intelligence is the easier one. Yet, um, private sector intelligence probably is the most diverse one, which means you're probably hopping on one leg and then on one toe, and then maybe you're balancing with one finger there. And you know, it's this constant back and forth, and and uh, sometimes it may start to seem as if you know these people are just teaching us things which bang all over the place, but <laughs> it is the way of the world. It is an evolving field, and I think that a lot of people don't understand that it changes its fabric ever so, you know, every two to three years, new things start to filter in and uh,
0: intelligence as such, right it it is uh, it was born out of uh, out of necessity. It is a service uh, of government and for the government, right. Uh, Nevertheless, times changes, right? Uh, And uh, threats evolve. And at one point, uh, also companies—you know—now companies are doing business on a global scale, which means they're they're connected, they have operations everywhere in the world, and it makes it it makes it very very hard for them to to be to remain without any impact to various world events. And this is why they need to establish these different intelligence units in the private sector. But one one of the main challenges that I encounter when I started to push this within academia was the definition of private sector. As I mentioned before, I tried to talk to people about private sector they would quickly dismiss me because they would think, oh, this guy, uh, he's just doing business intelligence or competitive intelligence uh, or uh, market intelligence, you know, business stuff. It's kind of boring. We're, we're more into this, the dagger, the cloak and dagger type of thing, the spies, right? The cool stuff, the sexy stuff. But, uh, and, and it's a problem. I mean, intelligence, uh, <laughs> intelligence itself, it has an identity problem. We, we yet cannot agree there are so many definitions uh, on what intelligence is and 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 that's probably why uh, we also have an issue defining private sector intelligence. I mean, you have seen this you just go on LinkedIn or indeed and try to look for a job in in, in private sector intelligence. Just have so many keywords All right, you, ca- you, you you can input I believe at one point uh, I was trying to come out with different keywords uh, I was trying we were trying to help the the kids and uh, at IPIP trying to look for jobs. And we came up with like 32 keywords. So 32 different ways in which you could phrase a single job for an intelligence analyst in the private sector, right? Could be watch officer, could be junior intelligence analyst, could be a GSOC officer. It could be a social media intelligence analyst, right? A crisis management analyst, security intelligence analyst, a security analyst. It's right? just some a threat intelligence analysts. just so many different ways that people try to advertise intelligence in the private sector, but they have actually, they have not taken the time to properly define what private sector intelligence is. And that's fine because it's not their job, right? Their job is, is to be practitioners. But as, uh, as an individual, I'm talking about myself now that I, that I, have, I have an interest in these different academic topics, right? And I did write um, a few years back uh, that uh, that article for the journal, uh, Welcoming the New Age of Intelligence, in which I, I pretty much introduced this notion of private sector intelligence, which is not new. It was more like a, a, a reintroduction of the topic to remind people that, hey, this actually exists, right? And I think you, you I mean, you have read it. You had to read it for class. <laughs> <laughs> right. But uh, anyways, uh, for for, uh, for the audience uh, listening to us, um, I, I define private sector intelligence and just a caveat is this is by no means the ultimate definition of private sector intelligence or the most comprehensive. It is at the time of when I was writing this back in t- 2017, it was something uh, that really represented what I was doing in terms of operations and analysis and my areas of responsibility. So, I defined it as a practice, uh, our, uh, the process of collecting, analyzing, and disseminating actionable strategic and tactical information obtained through open source intelligence, social media intelligence, and uh, human intelligence sources on possible hostile actors uh, or hazardous worldwide events, which may represent a direct physical or reputational risk or threat to a company's operations and assets,
1: right? Yep. Well, um, you know, uh, taking it from there, you know, in the sense that some of these definitions and the way that they can sometimes be seen, um, I also think that the fact that there's so many names and that to find a job, it's not like there's just like a few Keywords that you would use. There's up to 32. And uh, there are more example, than that. There are more than that. For... <laughs> and so, you know, um, to say that you are an intelligence analyst, um, in a sense, um, when you are outside of um, most of the US or the UK or most of Europe, you will find that that sort of definition gets fragmented um, in the sense that people look for different kinds of people to fill those roles because they don't have a way for describing what private sector intelligence is or they have smaller operations which require certain aspects and then you have certain people trying to hedge certain things and then that is and then and then and then I guess that that's where some of the problem with defining private sector intelligence comes in because of the different kinds of actors that they are. You know, if you're talking from the point of view of a global security operations center, then the function is within itself to have analysis delivered to serve a security management function. However, if you're a company that doesn't have the capacity to do that and to have its own team, you won't be going uh, looking for private sector intelligence analyst. You, you probably can't afford it. You're looking for intelligence vendors and therefore the need for the definition for them, it falls back. Why? It's because, you know, they just needed the information for this kind of thing and et cetera, et cetera. And they didn't know who to go to or what it's called. And then you hear them t- telling you that, yeah, we need some strategic advisories. Those were some of the terminologies that I ran into when I was first introduced into security risk intelligence kind of jobs, um, especially dealing with hostile sort of environments and working through the insurance industry. And you start to see the profile of information that you're looking into, especially when you're holding this portfolio for hostile environments, you really, you really, really start to realize that um, it sort of sways and there's, and there is this entire spectrum of types of uh, of 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 uh, types of experiences and i will say that for the us i think that that is where um and and i i really really think that the reason why most of the definitions offered about protective security intelligence and private uh, and and private sector intelligence are coming from there it's also got to do with one the critical mass of the types of entities, you know, uh, um, um, operating at that level, and their and their and their sort of and and their sort of requirements, and of course we can talk all day about the sort of global, um, you know, about the sort of global sort of comparisons, but uh, that that just sort of takes forever. But that's part of the problem with defining private sector intelligence. But a lot of people would would be picking bits and pieces of what you've set out as a very, very well fleshed out sort of- I think that and, and <laughs> I've said this multiple times,
0: private sector intelligence, even before it, it develops its own um, international worldwide standards. You know, we're talking about professionalization. Um, it lacks, or it doesn't lack, it, it, it is suffering from a crisis of identity, right? So no, nobody can agree on what an intelligence professional is. And, and that's because of the many different functions that we have. We can do crisis management. We can just do investigations. We can do uh, investigations and compliance. We can do strategic, tactical there there are many ways that you can implement a, an intelligence function into a corporation. But I want to ask you something that it, it really irks me. Uh, and it, 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 I mean, all my respect to those that practice business and competitive intelligence, right? That is just not my cup of tea, right? Uh, but what do you think uh, when somebody uh, uh, confuses what you do for
1: something like that? I think that, you know, it's, (laughs) yeah, this one, this one um, comes in, comes in and is definitely quite, quite offensive to be frank, in the sense that, wow, you really lack comprehension for what I say that I'm capable of doing. Um, And, 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 and the reason really, really is this, like, and it really ties into to 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 some of the stuff that I was saying sort of before. That you know, um, a lot of people are sort of fragmenting some of these functions and, and thinking that intelligence is the preserve of the state. You know, and 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 so when you mention intelligence out there, a lot of people think, okay, you're doing the the intelligence that civilians are allowed to do. That must be the explanation. You're not wearing a uniform. You're not looking like you're so um, espionage or James <laughs> Bondy, <Yeah>. you know. <laughs>
0: you, you're, you're
1: not intelligence material, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And and you know, you look like such a civilian, or maybe you look a little bit like a nerd, and etc. But um, and those aren't just stereotypes. I think that part of it really, really, and especially for countries which come from settings which are not exactly. As open, or, or don't, or or just have different systems of government. So where the subject is more sensitive in some places than it is in other places. For example, countries which declassify their their their, their sort of secret archives every now and then is a more um, is a much more open society to uh, throwing the word intelligence around compared to a country which doesn't. <laughs> Um, disclose or declassify any of its documents. And I think it's just that that sort of deeper culture that sort of contributes to that. And then at the end of the day, you have people naming um, intelligence analysts, all these other interesting yeah. names.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, to me, it's it's not really yeah. offensive. It just, it makes my job a lot harder because I get labeled. I get labeled uh, as something that I'm not and something actually that I I... I, I I don't have any knowledge. I'm sure uh, uh, if I study business or competitive, I will get proficient, but it's not something that I I want to do. But people get into this mindset, and mindsets are very hard to change. So that's a challenge. So what I do when I encounter people like that is I tell them, well, first of all, (laughs) there is a certain type of person, I guess. And and I don't mean in, in, in a in a sort of typical way, there is a perfect fit for people to work in the private sector. There is such a thing as the profile of a successful intelligence analyst, right? So um, which type of people work in the private sector industry? Well, number one, uh, people who really haven't had a, a chance to get into government. Number two, people who work in the government and then retire. They chose an early retirement and, and then they, they chose private sector. Now, within the analyst workforce, we're looking at people who have critical thinking. For some reason here in the United States, people think about, people regard critical thinking as, oh, it's just, it, it's not important, right? It's, it, the term itself has become so unimportant because people use it all the time. You see any job advertisements, they always put critical thinking. But I don't think actually they even understand what it is. Right. And yes, people say you have to think outside of the box. But really, if you want to be an intelligence analyst in the private sector, or even in the public sector, in government, by <laughs> but as a matter of fact, you need to be able to think outside the box. You got to be very creative. You got to come up with with uh, at different solutions that otherwise people who are not critical thinkers will not be able to come up with. Also people who are very curious. If you're not curious, you're not gonna be successful. I've, I've always told my students that a successful intelligence analyst needs to be curious. You need to be a nerd. And that's the bottom line. Right, you need to yep. you need to love to read, to learn. You need to seek out that that knowledge. You need to to enjoy um, hunting information and putting together that puzzle, to recreate that uh, that image. If if you don't have those traits, likely you're not going to be successful as an intelligence analyst or as an intelligence professional in the private sector. So to me, that th- those are some of the most important traits. That, that the profile of a successful intelligence analyst should have. I know obviously other things such as you know they need to be able to work independently, be proactive. You never you're never reactive because if you're reactive that's when people die man, that's when uh the company is, is impacted by something bad. That's when basically you're not doing your job. You got to be proactive, creative, proactive, critical thinker. Uh You got to be ingenious, you you, got to come up with ideas, you got to be a pioneer, Uh, a a good intelligence analyst also does not just sits down and and do uh, his or her job. You need to come up, you need to be always on the run for the next best product, even if it doesn't exist within your organization. This is something that I, I used to do all the time when I was a junior analyst, always trying to come up with different ways in how I can provide, how I can prove that my, my, my intelligence unit is, is of value, right? And that's something extremely valuable within an intelligence analyst, you know, that,
1: that hunger. What do you think? I think that, you know, like when it comes to this conversation about, you know, uh, what kind of people can really go into it, I mean, you've sort of touched onto it. And of course, I'm now speaking from this perspective of having to train people. And sometimes you and me know that when we're screening people, we'll do the mundane things of looking for certain aptitudes, you know, Um, but it doesn't mean that it can't be learned. But it also means that people who are forcing curiosity (laughs) it's most likely not going to end well because it's going to inspire a very lazy sort of approach to everything. But I, I definitely do support your, um, your uh, view, especially regarding curiosity, but I would probably sort of, um, sort of focus on something else, which I, which I'm always stressing as having a global outlook people who seek to understand things which exist outside of their immediate reality. And that's something that's so important. It's very very easy to put yourself in a container, which is your region or your country, and be like, yeah, this is where the world ends. Those other countries are nice. They're just for holidays. (laughs) They don't really have much going on there. But one of the most difficult things which when we've been training people, we've been finding is pushing mm-hmm. them beyond their comfort zone to look at places they and to, and, to, and to think about people's behavior in those places, likelihood of certain things. And for you to have foresight about something that you've never experienced physically, you've never even visited there, but somehow you have to truncate that information, comprehend, and then make it have significance and meaning. And not just meaning in the sense that, oh, that's nice to know, but actually be the first line of defense. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's people, people really, really, really think that this is something that is a huge undertaking. But uh, most recently among some colleagues, I was really asked that, you know, what do you think made you the best analyst? One of the colleagues was like, I was an English literature student, so I've read a lot of books, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and that's where my analytical brain comes from. And I was like, okay, that's very interesting. I just so happened to have some uh, a, a, a grandfather who was very, very enthusiastic about, about news every morning, every evening. He would flip through eight different <laughs> okay. news channels. Wow from different corners, even Chinese news. So you can imagine on Saturday morning from six until 10 a.m., he's watching news and I'm sitting there, we have breakfast and he's asking me and wow. talking to me about these questions. If you wow. if you grow up like that for 10 years, it becomes a habit. Now I go out there and look for, what did Franz van Katz say? Oh, and then on Al Jazeera? Did they have a different view? Uh That was my brain by age 19. So as to what invokes that curiosity, you know, those are the kinds of things. And that's why I keep on saying the whole global outlook. So someone who's willing to think beyond their...
0: And that is extremely important. I I have worked in teams where, unfortunately, some of of, uh, my, my... my fellow analysts, before I, I even got there, they, they lacked this uh, this global perspective, this uh, this uh, uh, multicultural approach, right? So they they were doing the, the bare minimum, just reporting uh, on any uh, given threats, but they wouldn't really understand what the root causes are. And I once I got there, uh, and obviously I, I have a lot of experience experience living in in Latin America, as you can tell by my accent, uh, <laughs> I understood uh, the context, right? Why certain things are happening. If you understand why certain things are happening, say uh, social unrest is huge in the Americas, right? There is a protest every day and let's say you're, you're, you, your company has presences in Chile, you know that every 11th of September, there will be a protest, and there, there is likely to be violence between the students, anarchists, and the Carabineros. Right? It is cultural, stemming from yep. uh, Augusto Pinochet's regime and the student opposition. Right? That was the first September 11th in the world, 1973, when Allende was ousted. But they don't understand that, they just report. And to me, having that cultural context is extremely important when becoming or when trying to become a subject matter expert. And if you're not, it's still very important because it's gonna allow you to draw trends at one point. Right. If you don't have that, then you're yep. basically just copying and pasting. And you need to have a lot of critical thinking. If you don't have any background in that culture, if you don't speak the language, you really need to ask the right questions in order to understand without proper context, right? But so another, another thing that I get usually when, when I, I, I talk to people about private sector is, well, do you need prior experience in government to join private sector? And be, believe it or not, a, a lot of people actually thought that that was a prerequirement. It's not the case. I mean, yes, unfortunately, when you're talking about manage- managerial positions and uh, executive positions you know we're talking about now the chief security officers, uh, the directors of intelligence, uh, the vice presidents of security uh, they do usually come from the IC or from some law enforcement agency or from the military, right? Uh, that's inevitable because the the, the the private sector is relatively new. I mean, we're we're talking about since really the as is since the 1980s, right? And it it didn't experience yeah. these explosions of popularity since not even after 9/11. Or we're 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 thinking maybe around 2007 onwards, right? When when companies started to develop these different GSOCs everywhere and everywhere oh imagine seven years ago you rarely will see any job ads nowadays you go going to linkedin you see a lot you see entertainment companies hiring pharmaceutical uh financial uh tech companies etc cetera, etc cetera. um so now because of the popularity uh that now there is all of a sudden a, a new pool of applicants and candidates which are the recent grads right those that maybe just finished uh, their their bachelor's or their master's degree, and then just want to jump into the workforce, right? Uh, so n- n- no, actually, you don't really need uh, to. In order to join an entry level position or maybe a mid level position, you don't need any uh, prior government experience. You just need uh, uh, the right type of experience or the right type of skill set, rather. What is your experience when when it comes to that in terms of uh, job requirements? And of course, we're going to be discussing this uh, in the next podcast. Uh, we're going to have uh, a few current practitioners, but right now, just you know, as a preliminary discussion, uh, Pilani, what, what really has been your uh, your experience when it comes to this uh, uh, requirements prior, you know, in terms of work history and experience? Yeah,
1: I mean, I'm. I'm, I'm I mean, uh, regionally speaking, you know, um, the volume of opportunities is much less. But of course, um, in the sense that someone can actually cite government experience, it has its own value in certain circles. For example, um, some Intel analyst roles, which have to do, like I was telling you, with hostile environments, sometimes those jobs sort of, those those, like, sort of job sort of requirements. Sometimes you might have had to have worked for an NGO within an, within a hostile environment. Maybe you were a UN an analyst, more more than likely, or maybe you were a government analyst. And that might be the threshold for that sort of thing. But then for the more sort of, you know, uh, um, for for certain different grades of, you know, clientele, there sometimes is different sort of, requirements. Some of them, like I said, (laughs) they just mix up someone who can blend political insight with economic insight because they don't have that methodology that what they're looking Mm. for is an intelligence analyst who can advise in this sort of capacity. So in terms of job requirements, I've looked at a field which is pretty much swaying. Maybe most of the time they will look for someone can do political risk analysis most of the time. If you can show any sort of experience where you've done some sort of risk analysis, I think that that's been one of the most important things within sub-Saharan Africa, demonstrating an ability to identify risk. And then you having that ability to then uh, reappropriate or recalibrate that risk analysis in you, whether it's for economic and to look into other things. That's not a surefire strategy. So which gives Advantage to those who've perhaps worked in the United Nations Joint Mission Analysis Center, and those who 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 are coming directly out of government roles. It's not fair, but um, when you have a place where the word intelligence yeah. is sensitive, <laughs> you're very very bound to get that sort of same sort of reaction, and not enough training programs. Now let's
0: discuss a little bit about the nature of the job. So I wanna I wanna talk about the nature of the job and maybe. Uh, a description of what a regular day—I mean, if you—if we can call it even that, right? Uh, everybody that is listening uh, into this podcast right now that is uh, a current private sector intelligence practitioner uh, knows that there is no such thing as a regular day. And, uh, one day you could be writing uh, short reports, uh, incident advisories, as, as uh, I have called them in the past, on. Planned protests, anti-government protests in Latin America. And the next, I'll be drafting a, a, a report because there was a bomb going off somewhere in Jakarta. Right. right. And it's it really, you don't have uh, a sense of normalcy at times. Uh, it, it is a very exciting environment to work on. But I want to ask you from, from the African perspective, right, and your exposure to the field, uh, what is in terms? What is the nature of the job for you like? And what does a regular day look like?
1: Well, you know, um, when it definitely comes to security risk intelligence, yes, there are um, different aspects to it where those who are located in urban cities probably have a different uh, sort of raison d'être there to to quite a lot of the actual majority. And most of the reason for this is that uh, for me, like I've said already twice, my prime focus has been dealing with hostile environments. So which means most of the work that I've been doing has either been as an analyst who's immersed in one of those environments. And therefore you can you can sort of um, aggregate most of the, most of the things that I was doing to amount to a crisis watch or or some sort of long-term sort of um, monitoring. So not necessarily your typical watch officer, but then in a very, very different sense um, in terms of time management, regimented time, very strenuous, especially if you're in an environment where the incident rate is very, very high. So where you have to be cataloging specific events telling them apart one apart from the other so I would say that um, for the African continent I think that one of the most 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 uh, significant, one of the most significant parts actually is the the, the 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 countries which are active conflict zones which have interested parties who are there or um, uh, countries which have a history of, uh, well, a a trend of, you know, sort of high amounts of political violence or, or protests or high crime rates, those areas which we classify within our hostile environment portfolio usually, usually are most of those places where it's extremely strenuous. The rest, um, maybe it moves considerably slower, but uh, that, that is now stepping into a more sort of strategic role, but it's but it's by no means resting because it's still strenuous to take account all of the information that you're receiving, all of the intelligence you're receiving, and draw some sort of strategic force. To
0: me, also, I I have worked uh, in in the in, in the pharmaceutical industry. I have worked on the entertainment industry, uh, also in the financial and tech industries, and I can tell you. There is no such thing as a level of normalcy there. It it is as I mentioned before, is extremely exciting. Uh, I remember when when I started my first job uh, as a junior intelligence analyst. Uh, obviously, like you know, everybody else that, go, that that goes to college and gets a degree in intelligence studies, you think that you know everything, right? Well, you know, you you, you get in there first day, they, they basically they walk you through the different types of reports, right? And you're overwhelmed because you think that uh, like the four, 400 different types of reports when they are actually four, but they feel like 400. Uh, the different people, right? a big thing is also the the organization, how big the organization is, right? Because for a single report, and it depends, right? And This is why it, it, it changes from day to day because if you do an, inv- an investigation today, you may need to send that report to the vice president of investigations, maybe to the global security group or global security organization or however they call it, also to different points of contacts, right? So it changes. So it's extremely important to understand the structure of the global security organization there. And that was it, it. Was just so stressful to learn the different names and their roles and also their their former backgrounds, right? So imagine me coming from Brunel University, moving moving back to the states from London, and then jumping straight into this, uh, into this role, and then learning. Oh well, you know the the chief security officer. Well, you know he was he was uh, he used to work for the FBI. And the executive director, he used to work in law enforcement. And uh, by the way, my 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 direct supervisor, he was for thirty something years uh, with the Air Force, and also liaised with law enforcement, with DEA, and with the agency doing different operations here and there, right? And uh, my the director of of the intelligence unit, then. Uh, he he attended West Point, and then you know you're overwhelmed. You're like, well, th- th- really, these people, and it's it, it's almost surreal, right? But then uh, uh, it's really nerve wracking when when you think that you know a lot, but really, not even your writing is good enough when it comes to that. And there is a there is a learning curve. Uh, uh, but when once you get all of that down, and you become very 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 fluent in the different Aspects of the operation, you know, again, one day you may be doing, maybe chilling out, doing an investigation on if you're in the pharmaceutical industry, maybe an animal rights organization that is targeting your your company, right? Because they have those. And you're, you you know, you're listening to music, we're also watching the news. I I had six different uh, news channels at any given moment uh, at the command center. You are doing an investigation, and then something blows up, or uh, you know, students and anarchists decide to clash with carabineros, and then all of a sudden, you know, the military police is uh, deploying water cannons and or bullets and and light munitions and tear gas, and and everything is happening within a mile of 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 the facility, right? And then immediately you need to jump; you need to go from zero to one hundred without even thinking about it. You it's almost like you you get rid of of, of of that, that sense of nervousness that anxiety right and you need to turn it you need to turn it into some sort of fuel into adrenaline for for your body to actually react because I have seen people frozen by the by 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 that fear of failure of what yeah. do I do next like oh holy cow like there there is there, there is an explosion down uh Avenida Bernardo Higgins in, in in Santiago, what what do I do? Right? And you and you freeze and you don't know what to do. And and then you're sort thinking like a, and basically you're blocked. Right. A good intelligence analyst he needs to be exposed to that side. Like it needs to be ready for failure. Right. It needs to experience failure. Right. And needs to be ready for action. He needs to have he needs to be ready to have boots on the ground. Right. But yes, just like that, it can be from being, you know, chilling out, watching the news, doing an investigation to immediately going into uh, different open sources and seeing what happened. And then within a matter of 10 minutes, you got to get that research done, that report done, got to talk to your supervisor, maybe to the director of intelligence, you got to escalate to the in country manager, to the facilities manager, you got to make sure you account for the safety of travelers if you have any travelers out there right and then you need to send that report already read and uh and corrected by the senior intelligence analyst to the global uh global security uh organization right and then everything resets back to normal and then you you you, you obviously you monitor the the developments of that explosion in uh, Avenida Bernardo O'Higgins in Santiago but then you continue to 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 watch the news and to do your your investigation right until somebody else you know, taps on your shoulder and says, hey, Efren, why should I need a crime assessment? <laughs> or oh, we need a travel security. Yeah, or you know, some executive director just decided that he needs to go, I don't know, to Mexico. I mean, he, he just need a travel security assessment. He's leaving in four hours. Yeah, okay. Get that information in four hours because you also need to request that information from the vendors. And then also incorporate your own research. Man, it's, it's tough. <laughs>
1: You know you know, um, just thinking about the way that we've been discussing you know what it what it takes, you know what's the nature of the job, what does a regular day look like, and we're talking really here about a lot of professionals, so I guess now it's my opportunity to pick your brain about what you think about some of the myths about analysts that we have out here. <laughs> All, All right, guys. so
0: th- th- this is one of the <laughs> topics that really um, uh, I-, I always end up uh, discussing with, uh, with with like-minded people. For example, with uh, the first time at ISA that I, I met Maria Robson, and she's also um, an academic counterpart that works on uh, private sector intelligence topics. We discussed that, right? And also... Um, intelligence professionals from, from the entertainment industry, right? We have this sort of like stereotype. For those that more or less understand what we do, they immediately label us as, oh, you must be a spy. So are you like the James Bond type? So I used to get that a lot when I actually even be, even before I became a practitioner, when I, when I was studying uh, at Aberystwyth University. And... Yeah no they will they they, they will ask me so what are you studying are and they'll you, be oh i'm studying know? international relations uh, i'm studying english literature whatever what are you studying Efren? oh i'm studying intelligence intelligence like artificial intelligence well no like you know intelligence as in, a, in an intelligence service like sis for example or, or or the cia right oh so you mean you're going to be like james bond but I get the same the same reaction when when i when I discuss private sector right but but the difference is that people are more inclined to believe yeah. that maybe you you must be some sort of mercenary, and then images of like black water come to mind right right private security private military companies right defense contractors and people think uh uh, Booz Allen Hamilton and this whole thing with Edward Snowden, right? So th- there, there is a, a, an issue there. Uh, th- this is a big stereotype, even by the press. So there is <laughs> one of the the earliest uh, reports on private sector intelligence was um, published by Wired, uh, back in 2007, and it's called Mickey Mouse Hearts Spies, right? And I particularly, I do not like this because it's it's very misleading, right? Because it, it makes it sound like the Walt Disney Company in this case, and, uh, and to the audience, this is my opinion and my opinion alone, and this is my interpretation of the... The article that I'm discussing, which is by Wired, that it's it's very misleading, right? The Walt Disney Company does not hire spies. We they do not spy on anybody or anywhere. So because of 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 things like this, people have this this very negative it's a negative misunderstanding of what we do, right? We simply, we, what we do, and you know this, and I've seen overs- maybe oversimplified into this concept of the duty of care. We, we seek to monitor and protect yeah. uh, a company's staff, right? People, people's lives always come first. This is what I was taught by my mentor from the pharmaceutical and also by the director of intelligence, by Andy, by Lawrence. I was taught People first, then facilities, and then brand and reputation, right? You can never replace a human's life. You may be able to repair, you may be able to go into business continuity and crisis management mode and continue to work remotely if uh, your facilities are impacted. And then you always have some sort of strategic uh <laughs> plan to, to recover from a, a bad decision that may lead to uh, a negative reputation, right? So that's, that's, to me, that's the way I see it in terms of priorities. That is our job. Our job is not to spy. So this thing that we are secret intelligence agencies operating, <laughs> uh, you know, all rogue in the corporate domain, it's, it's just complete BS, what what are your thoughts about that? I mean, and, and this is especially applicable to you because, uh, regionally speaking, uh, th- there is an even more uh, stigma when it comes to private sector in Africa.
1: Yeah, definitely, very much. I mean, if if privately hired spies could exist. <laughs> As openly as we do, <laughs> then
0: <laughs> we'll be—you know—every country policies. will be a failed state.
1: <laughs> I think that, <laughs> precisely. So, I think that it's 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 far from the truth. When you see, uh, you know, you know, you, you know, when you see people like us out here talking about it, learning the the whole trade craft, etc., cetera, etc. Most of the time. Um, Sub-Saharan Africa, maybe, yeah, but not just Sub-Saharan Africa, I can say all of Africa, I think, uh, sort of experiences this in some shade. Um, I think that the biggest thing here is that um, the intelligence function is not something that is, you know, uh, sort of having most in, most sort of instruments of oversight. So already it's a murkier sort of domain um, than any other sort of function that you will ever find. And like I was saying earlier, the sensitivity just around the mere word means that every time that you demonstrate this capacity to, you know, um, excavate pieces of information and piece them together into a product, into an intelligence product that ability to have that kind of foresight and those kinds of skills, whether it's open source, whether it's knowing where to look, whether it's knowing who to, do, who, who to sort of approach for certain types of information, no matter how you're piecing it together. Um, there definitely was a very, very bad tag that, um, that whole primacy of government, uh, sort of operatives retiring and leaving and then being hired by private companies um made a lot of governments very very agitated to the extent where we have this terminology which you know um very much so Lauren Hutton made a reference to it, and uh, there was a there was a South African minister uh who made a reference to it a real problem of spies for hire these were government operatives. it was their first inception into private sector roles in that sort of sense. Private sector roles, which are not uh, sort of PMCs or what with what, what, but real private sector roles, that people thought that these people are out there doing economic espionage yeah. because they work for Barclays. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, people <laughs> people thinking that oh, because they work for this mining consortium, you know, maybe they're trying to you know undercut some of the other competitors. So this whole corporate espionage esque that people really, really looked at it from the perspective of those skills that they have from there can only be used in this environment to delete and to destroy. And I think that it, it speaks volumes when you say that Correct. the first principle is duty of care and understanding that this is, this is intelligence, not, not with a deleterious end. It really has this strong protective aspect because you've just mentioned those three pillars where it's personnel and their lives and then followed by assets. And then maybe you can also think about operations and your reputation, et cetera, et cetera, in that order. The fact that we're thinking like that and we're harnessing information for that and we're monitoring happenings and world events and et cetera, et cetera, we're not snooping on on people with the intent to do harm to them. Correct. And I think that and that's the most a, important Again, just to
0: clarify to, to those uh, listening to the podcast that don't necessarily have any any background in private sector intelligence, uh, we are not spies. <laughs> we are not operatives, right? We, we don't have any hidden agenda. This is not a deep state. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it, it, that, that is really far-fetched. Okay, so let's switch gears a little bit. And uh, I really want to address the elephant in the room, Milani, And you know exactly what I'm talking about. We have discussed this in the past. And this is an article uh, by Vice Motherboard uh, that really caught my attention. And and just uh, you know a clarification. Of course, I'm I'm not going to drop the name of the company that is involved in that is mentioned in this article. Um, It's just going to be a very general discussion. But I want to focus really on the content and how private sector intelligence is being portrayed by the author of this of this article Uh, if the audience uh, wants to go and and read the article they can do so but uh, again i I am not sympathizing with the tech company that is being mentioned in that article nor do i have any knowledge about their operations uh or about the operations of the um, intelligence providing company also mentioned there uh this is also not a personal attack towards the author of the of the article, this is just our personal opinion uh, on on how our tradecraft, our profession, is being uh, perceived, and how it, it's it's really a misleading picture uh, from what uh, really happens. Um, so, uh, for the audience, so I'm I'm gonna give a very general uh, uh, hint on on what the the, the title of this motherboard yeah. vice. A title a, a article is and it is i'm going to replace the name of the company by tech right so tech company reports expose the company's surveillance of labor and environmental groups so from the get go pilani what what do you think obviously without going into details and without any sort of like name dropping um uh, again if the audience is curious about it they can go and read the article but uh, what do you what do you think what was your first impression when you encountered this
1: well, you see, my first impression really, really has to do with the use of terminology and quite a lot of mixture, which seems to stem from um, a very big misunderstanding of what private sector intelligence actually involves. And actually a little bit of a conflation between um, the very clandestine functions of a state and that you know that uh, private sector companies um, are also doing this. If private sector companies were allowed to um do this uh the first person to react to that would be the government because they would be encroaching on a function which allows the government to be in control of the security of the state and now i get the feeling that a lot of this stems from the fact that um there is a lot of eyes and a lot of attention being paid to Fortune 500 companies and their conduct, especially because they have attained the critical mass to have such huge numbers of employees. And and as such, you know, such huge entities always have a lot of issues in terms of how much they are in control of their uh, best practices, et cetera, et cetera. But the biggest problem here is that A global security operations center has been tagged as having operatives, uh, and it's also been tagged as having spies. Um, And from this angle, um, as a private sector intelligence analyst, I know that I'm not an operative. That is the first thing. I know that I, I am an enhanced researcher, if you want to use
0: <laughs> some
1: more terminology yeah. to really put it into perspective. I'm a researcher who has an intention to protect something. And, you know, this this really goes back to something that you and me have talked about, which is the duty of care. Because in that same article, there is, there is a contradiction within itself that, um, you know, the Global Security Operations Center is supposed to protect uh, a company's reputation, assets, people, and operations. However, then there is another aspect that they're saying that they are operatives who have a clandestine intent. Now, we're not saying that there cannot be any violations of any sort. We're not saying that people cannot misbehave. That happens anyway in the world. And if that had been the real case, right, What would have happened is that someone would have instituted legal proceedings, knowing that there are provisions against this. And this article would have come out saying that such and such tech company has been cited legally and has to attend charges at court. But that's not the perspective the article is coming from. It's coming from an allegations perspective and not properly founded allegations. So that's my perspective
0: yeah my my take on it and and so this motherboard uh vice article came out came out uh on november 23rd 2020 uh for those interested in in, in reading it uh in details uh it, it really it really frustrated me the the way that the author misrepresented the work of us uh professional intelligence analysts working in the private sector Right. Uh, not only was it not consistent in the way that uh, the author was using the words to describe the professionals uh, doing intelligence, the author used, as you mentioned, the word operative, the author also used intelligence agents, intelligence analysts, spies, right? So there is no consistency and I don't identify myself as any of those. As you say, I'm an, I guess, I'm an I'm an enhanced researcher. I'm an analyst. I'm a nerd. I I, I don't, uh, I, I don't necessarily go and and, and 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 spy on people. That that is not the purpose of a global uh, a GSOC, of a global security operations center. That is that is not the mission. The mission is to to uh, monitor events that may impact the people the infrastructure or the brand, the the three pillars in the duty of care. I also have an issue in the way that the author portrays certain, according to the author, uh, uh, the author had access to certain uh, privileged uh, uh, intelligence reports from this specific tech company. And the author cites Excerpts from, from, from said uh, intelligence report, but it really shows that maybe the author didn't have an understanding, and maybe the author is exaggerating to some extent what actually was said in that article. Uh, the author at one point says that this, uh, this intelligence report cited the quote unquote, the, the use of spies to, to monitor uh, workers uh, or, or, or to, to send them to, to a specific country to monitor labor unions. Uh, I don't think that any professional intelligence analyst would ever use that type of vocabulary. So I really think that the author here has, he had access to maybe, yes, an intelligence report, which are internal, and read it, misinterpreted on purpose to fit a certain agenda, and just ran away with it. I guess, and I have worked in the media industry. I have seen how journalists, uh, how they work. And I know that they vet the information. But I do not think that this author uh, took the time to actually do the research and uh, and took the time to understand how intelligence is a function of corporations nowadays to... To keep uh, people safe, to keep uh, operations intact, and you know, to run the business. Uh, unfortunately, we will now live in, in in a global, in, in a more connected world, uh, and uh, with that, more opportunities. Business are expanding, and because of the uh, volatility of threats, uh, we can companies cannot solely rely on governments. You know, they also need their own in-house intelligence machinery but I don't think that the author uh, took the time to understand the why behind uh, these allegations, right? Uh, And again, I'm not gonna get too much into into the details, but um, in in a very general sense, the author is saying that a tech company hired this intelligence company uh, who then provided spies, operatives, agents, Analysts, right? <laughs> Four in one uh, to spy. It's not the case. I mean, n- no intel, uh, no intelligence provider out there, wh- whatever you want to call them, vendors or private intelligence companies. Uh, n- nobody tells them, yeah, you know, I work for X company and I'm a spy. I mean, this is far fetched. I think this is just sense, very bad journalism, sensationalism. I, I, I don't know what to call it. Bill, it's, uh, it's it's something that really, uh, really frustrated me because uh, I've been trying to to make people understand about what we do in the private sector. And there you have an article like this by Vice, uh, which really uh, puts us under this, this label. And I don't wanna be labeled. I want people to understand what we're doing in the private sector. I don't want people to misunderstand and, and then maybe, you know, have this negative uh, uh, sort of uh, view about what we do.
1: Well, you know, um, I think that to also add on to all of that, you know, is to sort of delve into some things which are a little bit obvious. You know, we're living in a digital information era where everybody has become very, 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 you know, sensitive about, um um. This uh, this aspect of privacy, right? That uh, you know that uh, people are doing A, B, C, D, and E. And speaking from the point of view of knowing how much, as uh, private sector intelligence professionals, we've had discussions on ethics, heated ones, and where ethical issues have no bounds. But nonetheless, we have discussed these to a full extent, and people institutes. Uh, standards of procedure, you know, like uh, things which can and cannot be done. And as far as I know, a lot of analysts are guided by the fact that we can't account for the full ethical spectrum because it's just so broad and uh, um, endless. However, we can operate according to what legal prescriptions are given to us. This is what you're allowed to do. This is, this is not what you're allowed Correct. to do. First thing is we do not hack. That's rule number one. That, that is illegal. Anybody who's hacking into anybody's phone, into anybody's computer, et cetera, et cetera. And as far as I can recall, no such mention is made in an article. And also on a second aspect, the fact that this is labor unions or environmentalist activist groups When such groups take a cause and they're publicly advocating for specific issues, they become an aspect of public interest, right? Mm -hmm. You're up for public consumption in many ways. And if someone who, who has as their interest the safety of the company comes to monitor your public interactions, there's no case because they're just part of the crowd. They're literally just part of the crowd. It's nothing more than that except that the very intention of most labor unions and their lobbying aspect and most environmentalist groups with their activism portion is to be heard by the company of note. (laughs) So it contradicts that the first person who will hear what you have to say to the executives of such and such entity are the intelligence analysts and they're conveying the message as accurately as possible. And then, and then that is called excessive monitoring somehow. But those groups by definition are not just flirting with the public sphere, they intend to be in the public sphere. That's their currency is derived off of making a bang, putting a message out there so that people react.
0: Yeah, I, I, I believe this, uh, this article was, was written out of ignorance and I, I mean no disrespect to the author i, I am just criticizing the content uh, i have no idea about the the author's trajectory or or previous works or education or anything like that um, but for example the, the author wouldn't know that we like generally speaking uh, in in the in the realm of social unrest there is a history at least let's say in Latin America of having certain groups that are more prone to engage in violent protests. Uh, in, in this case, uh, you know, we if we did, and the article mentions the Yellow Vests. And I recall that in, in, in recently the Yellow Vest have been involved in Paris in violent altercations with law enforcement. So it's not like uh, the, the different labor unions that are being monitored are, are being monitored just because. Companies or whoever has a GSOC wants to spy on them. They just they just do it out of out of precaution. They want to mitigate in case there is an altercation during uh, a gathering, right? We we don't aim at uh, at uh, keeping that a tap on, uh, on on everybody on anybody by by the by matter of fact. We just want to make sure that if something happens, we alert the company people first, then the facilities manager, and we wanna make sure that upper management is well informed on what's going on. That if there is a wave of violence during a protest, that people seek shelter, that people do not go to the area of the protest, that facilities are aware that maybe the protest will, uh, will get near uh, the premises, right? But the intent is not to spy. The, the intent is to keep people safe. And this person, this is what, and this person interviewed the text company spokesperson, but it seems that, and the spokesperson gave, gave the author a, a an accurate view of what we actually do. If I mean, if if you read it, the the, the, the spokesperson said. Uh, yes, at this uh, tech company, we do that to 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 protect people, the assets, etc. Right? This is accurate. I mean, everybody listening into this podcast right now that is an inter- a private sector intelligence practitioner knows this. Right? But the author decided to go otherwise, as if the spokesperson was just doing the traditional damage <laughs> containment strategy. Right? Which is not true. There's actually the, the spokesperson was was telling you know something that it was extremely accurate. But it's the, the author decided to turn a blind eye on 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 that, and it's just the, the whole article, and, and and I'm and I'm and I'm going on about it, this whole article because I I feel very passionate about uh, private sector intelligence as an academic topic, because it just the topic doesn't really exist and it's it's in its early stages, and my my main point when I started was precisely one of the, the main reasons to um, inform people to educate to let them know that we don't spy <laughs> and this is really harming the reputation uh, of uh, any current practitioners or future practitioners in private sector maybe if you think about the negative consequences Pilani Im- imagine that because of this type of report I'm not I'm not saying that this this, this article, uh, had any any effect, but let's say that if in the future we had uh, sensationalism like this, uh, poor journalism like this, more reports like this, companies may opt from relieving certain contracting companies that are, are attached to this type of, uh, of bad reputation. So it can actually lead to loss of jobs. And I, I have seen uh, cases in um, in the recent past, where companies have decided to end contracts because something is seen as uh, uh, having a bad reputation. So, that.
1: Uh, well, you know, it, it, as an extension of that, you know, it's not only the immediate loss of jobs, but there's some long term consequences. Because I know, for example, um, that. You will probably see if you follow up on my LinkedIn profile. Mm -hmm. I've never cited myself as an intelligence analyst. I've actually changed the titles of each of my jobs, respectively, because of the stigma. And um, understanding that, you know, some understanding that private sector intelligence analysts are actually civilians who just have this ability to zone in on information, make it useful to a decision maker. In the private sector, so that they can execute and keep themselves safe. It really is an extension of the risk management portfolio. That is exactly what it needs to be viewed as an extension of the risk management portfolio, mostly taking into account physical security concerns. That's all that it is. We are the people behind the person who is the security manager who then institutes instructions for how. Um, security protocols will be and will be implemented. If then the security manager then goes into, okay, I want my security guards to take this 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 action. The analyst is not responsible for the decision that was taken. The analyst got the information which said that this is a situation, a situation report, a sitrep as we call it, and. That's why a lot of the time, a lot of people think that our work is exciting. correct. Actually, 90% of the time, it's damn boring. <laughs> you are craving the day that there's a crisis, and for the times that it's stable, you really are. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 it
0: is it. kind of messed up, right? <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, it, it is at the same time, uh, kind of true,
1: yeah. So, you know, for for, for people who spend 90% of the time monitoring things which don't happen and people who are mostly concerned about the fact that they are a cost center and that when there's no crisis to speak of, they look pretty useless. <laughs> um, and then when you put that into perspective, you know, I've already described the whole aspect about how, if you're an analyst who's working in some of these um, situations, You may have to show your value by stepping out of the bounds of just physical security contexts. Some companies may ask you to make alternative analyses of economic climates, et cetera, et cetera. It depends on what kind of entity it really is. But for those who do get the actual privilege of focusing on physical security 24-7, they they are better off, but that is 30% of the industry. 70 percent of the industry you will find as you said earlier with the definitions the job titles are mangled with other types of descriptions you know uh political risk etc etc and those are other sort of bonded um, uh, uh, uh uh other sort of bonded reports in my experience when i've had to look at um protest cultures in, in southern africa and their impact economically that already tells you that I'm thinking about the company. That if you set up shop in this country, right, protests are likely to hit you like this, like this, like this, like this. Have I zoned in on any of the pro- of the protesters? No, I haven't. The only thing I've done is to an- is to analyze how susceptible that particular company and their li- and and their line of business slash industrial focus has to attract sort of. Uh, uh, um, um, Uh, Mm -hmm. civil unrest or some sort of uprising in direct response to the activities that they're doing. Sometimes we pre-inform, sometimes we inform people who are already on the ground that, you know, it's viewed that you're not doing this appropriately and it's not in the interest of the greater society. So people are really having a problem with you You can mitigate this by either, you know, doing A, B, C, D, E. That's all that private sector intelligence analysts do. What's the real story? Take it there. Give the decision maker an opportunity to make the right decision. The rest is theirs. So this whole aspect of us being operatives, it's wrong-ended. You know, it really is wrong-ended and it really tags people as mercenaries. And at the end of the day, people who are just emerging into the industry can't cite themselves even just on LinkedIn as, I'm an Intel analyst <laughs> because it's going to be viewed as if they're this uh, you know curve, uh, uh, sort of covert ops uh, uh, type of individual, which is fine yeah
0: and, and again so uh, the discussion here is more about the way that the tradecraft is perceived in this article uh, rather than well, so I'm not taking any any, any standpoint and any sort of like posture. Uh, for this tech company or for this private uh, intelligence company uh, i'm not um, commenting i don't know any about anything about their operations or anything like that i'm merely from uh an academic point of view how this is inaccurately perceived and conveyed to the audience uh, it's it is very unfortunate that in in modern times uh we have access to a lot of information but because of that a lot of people have really stopped thinking and doing their own due diligence when it comes to the type of information that they encounter so my worry is to what extent articles like this have an influence on how people think and how people may perceive um our tradecraft right it's not like the 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 general audience will go and do their due diligence and actually fact check whatever this author has to say. If they are a very big fans of this new news outlet, they, they will definitely say like, OK, yes, you know, this news outlet is 100 percent accurate. I trust them. Therefore, everybody that works in the private sector must be an operative, an agent, a spy. Right. And it really causes a lot of harm. So uh, this this has nothing to do with uh, us defending any particular company. It is uh, uh, us defending the trade craft and to better inform the audience of what is and what isn't intelligence in the private sector. At the end of the day, yeah. anyways, it it is a heated debate, and <laughs> I uh, as you know, you know, we we we've spent hours and hours discussing this before, uh, but. Um, Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 Because you know, at at the end of the day, like I was saying before, we 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 do have these discussions about ethics, and so when you've gone through a painstaking process to make sure that you're not bending rules, you're not breaking the law, and that you're within the confines of what's respectable, and that you're still razor sharp in in your performance, you know, Um, so when you're misappropriated. At the swish of a pen and if that pen has an audience which can really be very detrimental to who you are and what you actually stand for of course there is going to be a reaction from us (laughs) i'm not even ashamed to say this there is going to be a reaction from us to you to, to, to sort of say that you know this is this you are falsely describing And it's not like I know any other people who are implicated in this process, you know, like uh, some of those analysts. I don't know any of them. I just know that the moment that it starts there, it's definitely going to hit me. And especially from an African standpoint, knowing how the Spies for Hire thing works, I know how bad it is. I know how I have to protect my image and this just makes it worse, even though it's not on my continent. I know that the moment that that's there, in many other scenarios, it can be cited. Oh, so you're like those guys who did this, and they can definitely cite those exactly. these incidences that. You know, so it's that a, in in in, the,
0: in yeah. what you mentioned actually has more um, negative repercussions for for you in 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 the African region because of a certain history, uh, a certain presence of private sector. Um, or the private military companies right private intelligence companies uh offering you know contracting yeah, yeah. services of, of some sort but definitely not the same thing that we do the protective intelligence right travel security stuff and so on um but that that really shows how something like this could have uh, an impact without even knowing right um uh, but in, in any case i mean this uh I really hope we don't see any type of articles like this. And, and if we do encounter articles like this, um, at, at least, you know, to to, to, give, to give a more accurate picture of what we do. I think at the end of the day, a lot of people will be very interested. I'm talking about the general audience, not the private sector intelligence audience, the general public. Uh, They'll be very interest, interested in, in, in learning more about intelligence, right? So there is like this... Uh, this really really cool mysticism about you know oh you go there and chase bad guys yeah we, we keep a, a tap on, on, on bad guys sometimes sometimes we have to do boring things like reporting on a, on a on a main water break. <laughs> it really depends right yeah. uh, but uh, I think yeah. that uh, at the end of the day uh, if if, uh, if stories like this emerge in the future, uh, I, I could only ask the journalist to at least be a little bit more responsible and do your due diligence, not just on the story that you're covering, but also on the whole profession and and the why. Actually get to the why, not the what and the how and the when, but the why. That would allow you to uh, to think critically about what you write and how you present uh, this type of, of information to to the general public. It really could can harm us. Yeah. Well, in any ways, we'll leave it at that. And I think, um, yeah, uh, uh, we can definitely call it a day. (laughs) Um, It's been an interesting conversation uh, discussing about private sector. Of course, it is going to be the the first of many podcasts where we address uh, a definition on intelligence or uh, elaborating on what private sector is because, you know, your private sector area of responsibility in Africa is definitely different from the one I currently have. It it We have the different functions, and uh, we can definitely explore this moving forward. So that being said, do you have any uh, concluding thoughts uh, to share with uh, our audience?
1: Well, I think that moving forward, you know, there's just... Um, there's there is there is really a very much growing environment in the way that uh, uh, in the way that the private sector is evolving in the age of globalization. I definitely think that there's not just Africa but also Asia and uh, Latin America. You know, posing very very interesting questions for multinational corporations and there's all sorts of businesses now. There's even. A lot of online businesses and so it it will be interesting to see the way that this field mm-hmm. actually evolves and i'm looking forward to the opportunity to be to be discussing those things as they happen so um without further ado thank you very much for the opportunity to to sort of uh, scrape the surface because. We're only just Absolutely. getting started
0: And I want to thank the audience uh for taking the time and and listening to us uh during our first episode. Uh this is your chief of station, Efren Torres, from somewhere in the jungles of South America.
1: <laughs>
0: um it's been a pleasure. I'll we'll we'll meet again uh during our next episode. End of briefing.